Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Capital Spotlight Show with your host, Craig McGrother, and as always, the principal and founder of Lone Star Capital, Rob Beardsley, who is especially chipper and happy today because we're in a special location for this episode recording. Where are we right now? We're in my living room, so got a little bit more relaxed, you can see, tie still on, but no button on the jacket. Right, right. And also, this is a first on the show, we are shoeless because in New York City, it is ever important to take your shoes off right when you get into the door because no one wants to track the dirty shoes throughout the square footage of the apartment. Yeah, you got to have some manners, right? Correct, yes. Especially with a place as pristine as this, which you may or may not actually get a quick little tour of uh, the apartment if Rob is feeling so uh, inclined to do so. But without that, um, that yet to do, we want to talk about the fun agenda that we have prepared for you. So we're going to start with floating rate debt, preferred equity and deals, good RE almost always being bought with negative leverage, distressed capital funds. So there's a lot of conversations out there about, hey, is it a good time to you know invest in a fund that will be kind of rescue emergency capital? So we'll talk about that. Um, supply conversation. And then we're getting, to, are getting into some fun conversations that are not real estate related, uh, but that is the New York restaurant scene because we've been eating way too well. We were just rehashing this uh, today at lunch with your dad today. And the restaurant and the food I've been eating, I've eaten at basically every single meal since being here for my month-long stint. And I'm actually sick of eating out officially. I'm tapped out. There's only a couple more places that we're going to be going to uh, until I'm going to start cooking every single meal again once I get back. Uh, but we'll talk about the New York restaurant scene. And then finally, a special dive and peek into uh, Rob's closet as we are in the home of the founder today, so that'll be fun. So let's start and get right into it with floating rate debt. So we're at the point where many people believe that we're at the rates high, or at least we're really close to it. There's potential um, for a rate hike in November, but then the conversation goes, do I really wanna fix my debt for five years if I think that is gonna be highest today? So that's the conversation of, is floating rate debt making sense moving forward? So this is be, will be something that will be very interesting to see who will uh, continue with floating rate debt that gives you a little more optionality. Uh, we more recently have been just more fixed on wanting to do fixed rate debt. Uh, but what is your take on the floating rate debt conversation? Do you think that's something we want, actually want to do again? Because maybe we were prisoners of the moment thinking, oh, we'll only want to do deals of fixed rate debt. Maybe perhaps at the end of the cycle, we feel like there's you know, a sunsetting on how much longer it goes. We'll do fixed, but does it make sense maybe do floating rate debt coming up? It certainly could. So there's many factors at play. It's, it's quite a complicated thing, right? It's the age old question. We, we talked about this in depth on the debt panel at our summit last week. And I was the moderator. We had really great panelists that were lenders, debt brokers of various types. So that was an insightful conversation as always. But just to talk about the current state of affairs, what we have experienced in the last year plus was a deeply inverted yield curve, which is extremely anomalistic. The yield curve does invert customarily, and that presages a recession, right? That's the number one indicator that you're going into a recession, typically once the yield curve inverts, 18 months later, the US is in a recession. Well, we've had a deeply inverted yield curve, not just a little inversion, a deep inversion for 18 months, right. <laughs> for a long time. So that led, lead us believe that we're in a recession now? It very well yeah. probably does mean that, right. and that 2024 will come with some, some recessionary type dynamics. 
but of course, we don't predict the future, nor do we invest based on our beliefs about the future. But I'm just kind of laying some ground rules there. But as far as the inverted yield curve, what that specifically means, so for those that don't know, the, in, the yield curve itself is generally measured as the spread between SOFR or the two-year treasury and 10-year treasury. So a normal healthy economy would have a positive sloping yield curve because generally speaking, if a lender's taking duration risk, they should be paid for it. And I told you this example, I tell people this example a lot where I say, hey, if I asked to borrow money for a month, what interest rate would you charge me? 5% maybe? Mm -hmm. And then if I said, well, hey, what if I wanted to borrow money from you for 10 years? Say, yeah, I'll pay you back in 10 years. What's the rate gonna be then? You might not even be willing to make that loan, right? So duration is important to lenders and they should get paid more for it. However, when you have an inverted yield curve, everything's backwards. The interest rate actually is lower on the longer term bonds than on the shorter term bonds. And I don't wanna steal the show and turn this into a whole economic thesis, but that's not right, obviously. Uh, but specifically as it relates to fixed versus floating, when you have that inverted yield curve, it makes floating that much more expensive. Because if long-term rates, which is what fixed rates are based on, if long-term rates are lower, meaning we have an inverted yield curve, then fixing your rate makes a lot more sense because you're locking in a lower fixed rate day one. And your pay rate on the floater day one is much higher. So for people who are thinking short term, if you will, or just at least for the first year or so, they can lock in interest rate savings in an inverted yield curve scenario. So that pushes people into fixed. However, if I'm gonna keep on going with all this, an inverted yield curve and a dynamic where fixing is cheaper than floating is usually, historically speaking, the worst time to fix, which is crazy, right? Because if you're saying- It's, it's not very intuitive to think, but it's, you know, as your point making the point, the logical thing to do, right? Yeah, and you know, there's lots of different ways to describe it. A, a trend can't continue forever, right? I forget who said this, but it, you know, basically, if something can't go on forever, it, it won't. won't. Yeah. <laughs> so this inverted yield curve will not go on forever. And usually what happens is people think they're geniuses locking in a fixed rate below the floating rate, but then we have a recession, the Fed stimulates the economy by lowering interest rates, and before you know it, floating rates are cheaper than fixed. So let me ask you, what if we were to lock in for a deal, floating rate debt right now, without any buy-downs, what are we talking pricing being? Yeah, gross pricing, you're talking about in the low to mid sevens. Okay. So we're talking maybe seven to 7.5. Let's just be rough with it, yeah. Okay, seven, so, so let's call it seven a quarter. If we were to lock in without any buy downs for fixed rate debt on maybe a seven year note and a 10 year note, what are we talking about okay. there? Okay, so here's what's interesting. The yield curve, to answer your question, it's about 7%. Okay. Okay, so it's maybe, today it's maybe 25 to 40 bips cheaper to fix. That's because the yield curve has flattened a lot. Long-term long bonds have gone up a ton recently, and that's been a dramatic thing. As you know, for us, it's been dramatic. For the markets, it's been dramatic. The 10-year U.S. Treasury bond is what the vast majority of financial assets are valued based on when you're doing a discounted cash flow analysis from venture capital, private equity, real estate, even stocks, and, and for sure bonds, right? If I, if I just paid for bonds that are paying me 5%, but then all of a sudden bond rates go up to 6%, my bonds are worth less because I could buy new bonds at a higher yield, right? So everything is correlated and based on the 10-year US Treasury in one 
way or another. And those bonds have gone up in yield a ton recently. And SOFR, the short end of the curve, has stayed the same. SOFR has been at about 5.3% for the last while. And meanwhile, we've seen treasuries go from 350 to 5, roughly speaking. Yeah. Right? So that's flattened out the yield curve a ton. I mean, that's when we refied a lot of our properties, actually, around about, I want to say, 33 to 3.6%, uh, roughly through our portfolio, which is very beneficial for us. But thinking about that before, that's just, it's scary to think about. No, the, these moves are dramatic. And you're typically not talking about the 10-year moving 10, 20 bips in a day. But that's the seesaw and the trend that we've been experiencing, which has been right. painful and tough. And it's causing prices to just continuously be revised. But anyway, with the flattening of the yield curve, now it really starts opening up the, the question of, should we float? And I think this question of should we fix versus float goes so much more beyond economics because it also is emotional, right? Because we're not just talking about plugging in numbers into a spreadsheet and crunching data. We're talking about real investments, real dollars, and real people. And when you're managing investor capital, you want to reduce as much uncertainty as possible. And to the extent that it makes sense in the deal pencils with fixed rates, you're arguably better off removing the interest rate variable from the equation to help you and your investors sleep at night. And by removing that variable, you're saying basically fixing because there's not as much volatility one way or another. So the pros and cons, I guess, right now, just to analyze this, is, okay, if I have fixed rates at, I'm certain to be in this deal at this rate, but let's say if that runs down 150 bips in the next 18 months or maybe two years, well, then you're leaving some meat on the bone from a cash flow perspective. Uh, but you know, with floating rate debt, can you get a five and seven year term? Can you get longer terms like that? What does that look like? Because you know, it would be nice maybe to do you know, a shorter term, like a 24 month term, but who's to say that in 24 months, you know, 24 months from that might be the bottom, the low watermark of the real estate market, right? So yeah, that could be a little bit cheaper, but you know, do you really want to exit or refi if you had a two year note like that? Probably not. So can you walk through maybe the terms that you can get floating rate debt, the years of that perhaps? Sure. And the dynamic you explained is exactly right. And that reflects the borrower's side of the equation when you're talking about duration. See, from a lender perspective, like I explained, the longer the duration, the more risk to the lender. But on the borrower side, it's the opposite. The shorter the duration, the more risk. So as a borrower, it behooves us to borrow as long-term as possible because that gives us the most flexibility and the greatest window to eventually pay that note off, which is one of the largest sources of risk in real estate or in any sort of financing is maturity risk. When that loan matures, you need to be able to pay it off. So from, from a risk standpoint, you know, we prefer to borrow long rather than borrow short. And when you're talking about floating rate debt, yes, you can borrow floating rate bridge, which could be 24 to 36 month terms, but you can also borrow agency debt on five, seven and 10 year terms. So it's absolutely possible to float on a longer term basis, which again, could make sense. And historically speaking, if you analyze the data, floating has typically been cheaper over slices of historical time. It's just there's these nasty periods, which we just went through, of interest rate increases in the short run that really blow up your model, blow up your emotions, and make it very difficult to stomach floating rates. And people are talking about this right now as rate caps. So can you explain kind of what a rate cap is to people and maybe 
there was a situation right now where, hmm, what if we had a rate cap up to 8% if you know, we're getting basically effectively 7.25 on debt right now, as you mentioned, for floating rate debt, could you get a rate cap up to 8% or would it be 100 points above that, basically a, a full basis point uh, or whole, a whole percentage point? Can you kind of walk us through that? Because yeah, there were some people that did, uh, sorry to cut you off right mm-hmm. there, but there's some people that did not put a rate cap on. Uh, famously, the biggest foreclosure recently in Houston uh, was floating rate debt, bridge floating rate debt, I believe, with um, Mez also in the capital stack, uh, and that got busted up very quickly. So, Yeah, and we've talked about caps on the show before, and caps are not a cure-all. You know, caps don't magically save your deal. At the end of the day, a cap is a hedge that you put on floating rate debt so that you have a ceiling on your interest rate exposure. But there's an expiration date to that hedge, right? You don't just get to, I mean, you theoretically could buy a interest rate cap that would put a ceiling throughout three years, five years, but those are horrendously expensive because who is willing to be on the other side of that trade to sell you that cap where they're going to promise to protect your interest rate exposure above a certain strike for five years, right? There's just the further out in time you go, the more uncertainty and traders of these hedge products are going to price that in and make it very, very expensive. So as we've said on the show before, hedging is not free, right? To put a cap on your deal, it's not free. And it's also, yeah, it's not a permanent or the biggest safety valve that's on a fire extinguisher should something go wrong, right? Right, exactly. I mean, most people are buying two to three year caps. So... You, you purchase that and then you've got three years of protection, but also you paid for it. So let's just say you, and again, you can buy a, a strike at any, and you can buy a cap at any strike. And what that means is I could buy a three-year cap, which puts my all-in interest rate exposure at 7%, 6%, 5%, right? So that would be considered buying a deep in the money cap if I wanted to essentially buy it so that my interest rate is only 4%. But what I'm effectively doing there is front-loading my interest costs. I'm just basically prepaying interest for the in-the-money portion of the, of the loan. Because if interest rates are 6 and then I buy a cap that actually hedges me down to 4, I'm actually just prepaying 2% of interest over 3 years, which is fine. You, know, you could prepay that, and that's great, but that's going to cost money. And the time value of money is such that you're prepaying it all up front it's more expensive to do that than to pay it over time. So those are some of the things, I mean, I, I didn't really want to spend a lot of time on caps. I mean, they're important, uh, and I feel like we've covered them before, but certainly they are a factor when you're talking about fixed versus floating and customizing your floating. One right. more point I wanted to make <clears throat> about removing variables, because I, I feel like you and I are painting somewhat of a negative picture on floating rates. Not necessarily, actually. I'm a lot more optimistic on the potential premise of doing it than I was before. You know, it's not something I want to do for every single deal, um, but it's potentially a really way, great way to solve for, you know, the fact that, hey, debt's really high right now, and are we going to be the suckers that fix at the highest thing, and are we emotional from overcorrecting, and are we whipsawing potentially from the experience of everyone else's pain in the market? You know, we've been really fortunate, and maybe that's just me being greedy here, but you know, ultimately, is it within our best interest to you know, do a five-year floating debt situation? Maybe, perhaps in July, because I think rates will not get cut until uh, conveniently before the election cycle uh, in Q3 to Q4 next year. So I think 
there's a very compelling case to be made that around June and August might be the best time to potentially do floating rate debt with maybe some responsibility of a rate cap. If you think that there's gonna be a couple years where rates are gonna start trickling down and then three years from that point, the market should rebound. And if ideally you've bottomed out and the market's bottomed out after um, you know this full cycle, because you know things usually take about six months to trail, we're, we're kind of in that period where you know rates are kind of close to the highest right now the next six months dominoes should fall pricing should change caps should adjust and we can kind of go from there so i'm a little bit more optimistic on the premise of you know about a year from now or 10 months from now it may be a very very uh beneficial time to kind of pick that conversation up i agree and if you ask real estate people what they would do if it was just their own money or if you're asking them behind closed doors, I feel like, and I actually know, many of them would say they would float. If it's their own money and their own deal, they would float right now. So I don't think you're off on that premise. I think all. it depends where I'm at as well. And this is just more of a kind of a, a, an exercise of what would I do if I had a billion dollars, right? But if I had a billion dollars, or if you, if you already had money, if you're in the capital preservation perspective, if you were not trying to you know, make a lot of money, or I guess if you're just trying to preserve your wealth, then I think the answer is always to fix because there's a lot higher likelihood of you know security and safety with, as you mentioned, removing the variable there. If I was trying to make my first billion, as they say, which I am trying to make my first billion, uh, maybe floating is, is a better answer because it's a little more aggressive. And then maybe we can talk about the advantages of floating rate debt, which is the prepayment side, right? So yes. you can get out of a deal quicker. So if we feel as if, hey, maybe the market's not going to be fully booming um, in two years from now, but it, let's say if we in a year, 10 months from now, buy a deal, hold it for three years, hold it for two years when the market's kind of bottomed out and at least get some, some rebounding with some value add component. We can kind of take a deal from here, the market goes here, and then we add a little bit here to you know, the, the, the value of the property. Then we kind of created this. That can make sense in a you know, kind of a 24 to 36 month long cycle if we think we're gonna bottom, or the market's gonna bottom out in kind of 10 months from now, which I think it will, so. 10 months? Yeah. Yeah, perhaps. Close, so, so who knows? You brought up prepaying penalties, which yeah is exactly right and that's where I wanted to go because people overlook prepayment penalties and that is another element of the financing equation. So if we talk about debt, what are the elements of the equation? We have proceeds, right? Generally speaking, borrowers want to borrow more rather than less because it amplifies their returns assuming everything goes well. So you have proceeds, you have interest rate, fixed versus float and just the, the all-in cost. And if it's floating, you know, you can kind of, again, we don't want to predict the future and invest based on our assumptions, but if you have a floater, you can model out what you think that floater is going to cost you over the next three, five years, and you can compare that to the fixed rate equivalent. So to your point, if you think that the Fed's going to cut rates in Q3, I agree with you. I think the Fed will cut rates in Q3, but I think we're only going to get 50 to 75 basis points of cutting next year. And if it's only that amount, and if it's only 50 to 75 bips, then okay, you're well, basically getting to the fixed rate equivalent by that time. So, I mean, it's, it's good. And then maybe there's more cutting the year after, but you could just model it out, right? So I'm just kind of laying out the, the proceeds, the rate, amortization, interest only, and then the big one, 
prepayment penalty. And then you have to underwrite the fact how quickly do you want to go gray because you have really nice black hair right now and that could change over the course of time if we've got a billion dollar or half a billion dollar pro, uh, portfolio of floating rate debt. And I think you want to keep your hair and moreover keep it nice and uh, you know black as we speak right now. So. Yes, yes, I appreciate my hair and my hairline and the more fixed rate deals that we do, I think... We can keep a fixed rate hairline. Yes, we're preserving yeah. our, our fixed rate and preserving our hairlines. I, <laughs> I agree 100%. Uh, so yeah, I've, I, I'm happy that we don't have a lot of floating rate debt that we're dealing with right now. That is a blessing. And a common question that I actually do get is, and I'm going to ask you here for everyone to, to watch and listen, is what's the prepayment penalty on the loan? So, And that's not a simple answer always, is it? Well, no, you're right. And so, but like I was saying, people, if someone's asking that question, they're already on the slightly more sophisticated side of things, which no surprise, we deal with a lot of sophisticated folks, so they're all over it. But a lot of people who are just getting in the game or not as sophisticated, they don't even think to ask about the prepayment penalty. They just, they don't even think about it. And it actually is a function or a factor into your total cost of capital. So, Let's talk about prepayments. We're talking about yield maintenance, defeasance, which are basically the same thing. We have step-down prepayment penalties. We have lockouts. And we have simple 1% exit fees on a lot of floating rate type executions. So that runs the spectrum of really expensive to in the middle to less expensive. And depending on the type of prepayment penalty you, you go with, that can have an impact on what your all-in interest rate ends up being. because. If you want to buy down your prepayment penalty, you can pay more in your interest rate so that you get a more favorable prepayment penalty. So you just need to analyze a three-year hold or a five-year hold or whatever your projected hold is and look at, okay, what's my rate? And then what's my cost to prepay? And then you can factor that in to your actual interest rate. Let me just give a quick example. If you have a five-year projected hold period, and let's say you have a 5% interest rate on your loan, but then when you exit, I'm just making numbers up here, and then when you exit after five years, you have a 5% prepayment penalty. The way you'd calculate your all-in cost of capital there is you would take that 5% prepayment penalty after five years, and you would amortize it across the five-year hold. It effectively adds another 1% to your rate. So your true all-in rate there is 6% per year. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you could analyze that and then you could compare the floating rate equivalent and you could say, okay, well maybe my floater is floating up and down, but I think it's gonna average five and a half percent. And then when I exit, I pay no fee, let's say. Okay, well, on a true cost of capital basis, the floater is cheaper, even though you're paying a five and a half percent rate versus the 5% fixed rate because you're calculating and factoring the prepayment penalty. Very similarly, you can look at interest rate caps through the same lens. A lot of people go, oh, this deal's great. We're floating, but we're buying an in-the-money cap, so our interest rate's actually only five and a half. Well, you paid money for that interest rate cap, so your interest rate is not actually five and a half because you paid some crazy number like 5% of the loan amount up front as an interest rate cap, so your true cost of capital there is actually six and a half. Or whatever the case may be. So factoring in prepayments and caps and things like that all go towards your true cost of capital, which is important when you're trying to compare different financing options. You've kind of mentioned this, that basically anyone who bought a floating rate debt deal in 2020 and 2021 
our first half of 2022 is, is in some trouble. And that's due to where they probably underwrote it, maybe what they looked at for the futures to be, and where debt is now. How much in trouble are those deals? And is there any way a deal could really overcome the debt, I'm not going to call it crisis, but the debt issues we are in currently? Sure. In that sense. Sure. So, you know, it's obviously a hot topic to talk about the current state of the market. And so we can kind of cover the very high level, you know, because we don't want to call out anyone or any deal. But And by the way, this is, we say this all the time, and I'll say this again. We are not want to dance in anyone's graves. We don't want anyone to lose money in this business. Inevitably, it's going to happen, and it is happening, and it will keep happening likely for the next 20 month, 24 months. And this won't be the last time in history people lose money in real estate acquisitions with debt associated with the deal. Having said that, yes. So let's say you were buying, everyone was buying on, not everybody, but most. Most people were buying on floating rate debt, and they were caught up in the competitive market. So us included. And so you're not a bad person if you did a bad deal, right? That's just, I feel like people are doing a good job all in all of being sensitive with each other about this topic, but I think it's early. And I think when the pressure's really on and people are losing money and making difficult decisions and realizing bad outcomes, I think there's gonna be fingers pointing and there's going to be blame, but we need to remember that, you know, if you did a bad deal, you're not the only one and you're not, you're not a bad person. And and you can, there is light in the tunnel. There is business to be done through this process. Just learn your lesson. Right. Like JC said on a couple episodes ago, if you handle a foreclosure process with grace and proactiveness, you're going to be able to borrow money again. You're going to be able to run your business again. We didn't really speak about the investor side, and I personally, I've heard of stories, but you know, we don't have experience of you know, get, doing a foreclosure or losing investor capital and then trying to raise money thereafter. But I've heard of stories where people have been successful in losing investor money, then restarting their business. So while we hope to never lose investor capital, you know, we never plan to, of course, uh, and we don't wish it upon anybody else, you know, like you said, there's light at the end of the tunnel. So with that being said, just to put some quick numbers to it, it was a very hot competitive market. Interest rates were very low. People were buying deals at legitimately in the hottest markets, 3% to 4% cap rates. Okay. 3 to 4% cap rates. They were financing with floating rate debt, which was very cheap at the time around three to 4%. So that was the dynamic. Now fast forward. And the reason why people were willing to pay a three cap for a deal is because they were very optimistic about the property's future performance. They thought that, okay, I'm paying a three cap today, no problem, rents are going up, my rents are gonna continue to go up, I'm gonna implement a successful business plan, and I'm actually gonna be able to take that three cap to a five and a half. And that was considered a very successful plan because you were stabilizing, if you're lucky, to a five and a half, and you'd be able to exit theoretically at a four and a half percent exit cap rate and making that spread was was profitable and you could get a mid-teens of return so when your your yield though is tops out at a 5.5 and the cap rate is at 5.5 or a six or six and a half or maybe a seven what happens then right that's exactly right so if your goal was to get to five and a half percent yield on cost but that's not good enough in today's market because the market cap rate might only be five and a half that means you're breaking even. 
It's not the end of Which the world. Which is, you're lucky to, to come out par. As we've spoke with uh, several of our people that we all wish, you know, for some deals that not Lone Star deals, but other people's deals uh, that maybe you or may not invested in or just anyone. If you come out at par right now and get an exit there, how lucky are you to come out of par and deploy equity maybe in the next 12 months where you could be in a, a, a bear market and, you know, ride into a bull? Yes. So, so, so that's the dynamic. And, and to make matters worse, people that were wishing to get to the five and a half are now experiencing hurdles and challenges getting to that five and a half because rents have not continued to grow as they were at 10, 15, 20% per year. They flattened out and in some cases have gone negative. So now instead of solving and, and hoping for a five and a half, you're maybe at a four and a half today, right? So if you're at a four and a half percent and cap rates today expanded on you to five and a half to, or even six percent, you know, we're looking at deals in the sixes today. And I think that cap rates will go to seven. And I'm talking about quality assets, quality markets. It's going to be an unbelievable time to buy. But that's the other conversation. If you find yourself sitting at a four and a half percent yield on cost and the market cap rate is six, you're in trouble. If you were to sell, you would lose money. So, and would you even be able to, with, with that right now, with treasures running up, if you're looking to solve for a 4.5% yield and your debt now with floating rate debt is a 5 or 6 or 7, I mean, are you even able to pay the principal or the interest, the, the loan amount? Or, or are you bleeding, is it an alligator property every single month currently? And you have to, you know, as you said, the only, there's only, the only thing worse than a capital call is meeting the capital call and losing your money, right? So are those kind of the people right now that are looking around like there's just no way to salvage a situation unless you're basically paying for uh, a handsome amount to cash and refi for fixed rate? Right. So the first negative thing is, okay, we're solving for, you know, we wanted to get to a five and a half. The market changed on us. Our deal today is worth 30 million. Uh, but no, I'm sorry. Hold on. Our basis is 40 million, but all we could sell the deal for is 30, right? That's where a lot of people find themselves. Well, if, if the deal's only worth 30, just don't sell it, right? There's your easy answer. Kick the can down the road because maybe hopefully one day the deal will be worth 40 and you can get out and break even, right? That's one negative, but that's the one solution. Now, however, to your point, rates went from three and a half to... Sofer's at 5.3. The average spread on a bridge loan deal was about 350. So we're talking about 8.8% on a bridge. And that's not a recipe. So if you have a 4.5% yield on cost and you have an 8.8% interest rate, that's a very, very difficult situation. And that's where we've seen foreclosures already take place. Like you said, the Apple's Way foreclosure, the Rockstar foreclosure, I'm sure there's been others that we're not aware of. Those were functions of the borrower unable to pay interest. It wasn't a maturity default. It was unable to pay interest. That's when the lender has to make a move. If you're able to pay every month, then you've got leeway. You can negotiate. You can extend and pretend. You can kick the can. You can do a workout. But if you can't pay... A wise man once said on, I think it was at our conference, or maybe it was before, if you owe the bank $1 million, you are effed, as he so uh, elegantly said. If the bank, or you owe the bank $1 billion, they are effed, right? So it's kind of interesting how that works. And if you are in the camp where you maybe invest with a sponsor where 
Uh, they owe the bank a billion dollars. Perhaps there's a solution that they have to work out. Yeah, like we talked about on previous episodes, Tides did a bit of extend and pretend with MF1. That's good. Not great. I mean, it, it's, it doesn't fix all their problems, but it does. It's a band-aid. At minimum, it's a band-aid and a step in the right direction to, uh, as you said, kick the can down the road. So I guess just, you know, to kind of put a bow on this conversation. Oh, did you have, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So and we can definitely go. No, keep it going. Yeah. But yeah, I think the interesting thing is, and this is going to segue nicely to one of your topics today about rescue capital and funds and things like that. The interesting question, I've been asking this a lot, and I haven't been really satisfied with people's answer, right? And I'm, I'm going around, I'm asking the most sophisticated people this question, which is, how do you decide if it makes sense or not to fund a capital call? Can I call someone out right now? Are you going to, because you know I'm going to go with this. Mm, no, you can't, I mean, you can't say any names, but, but go ahead and do a call out. Someone, you don't want me to say any names? I'll do whatever you want me to say as, you know, go ahead, you're go the ahead. captain now. Do yeah. you want me to say the name? No. You, you no. Know, no names? No names, no names. Okay, gotcha. Well, someone who's a big talking head in the space once said, never, ever, 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 ever meet a capital call. He's also simultaneously saying, don't ever do uh, floating or only do floating rate debt. And then he was also at the same time uh, at BEC and several other conferences there to raise an emergency capital fund. Now, was he raising money into the own deals that he's capital call, a capital call currently? Perhaps, I don't know, but it's all very inconsistent. But he said to never meet or to do a capital call. And here he is making them and doing them. So I uh, hate to say this, I don't find this individual credible anymore. Maybe he's a person at the moment. Maybe I'm being too harsh and I think I'm too cool right now. But still, I think it's very inconsistent with what he was saying. So that's my little two-second tangent. Okay, okay, that's, that's all fair. I mean, yeah, t- times are tough and we can get into yeah. that for yeah. sure. So the, the question is, and you jumped ahead to kind of more of a, I don't know, maybe an in- emotional or contradictory dynamic related to capital calls. Because obviously everyone wants to save the deal. There's an emotional attachment to not losing money. Well, the other predicament as well is we're all human and no one wants to admit they're wrong or admit that they invested in the bad pony, that they bought the bad horse. But the reality is if you ever deal with a capital call, there was some structural issue. Maybe they didn't read structuring debt and equity for multifamily real estate by Rob Beardsley. Perhaps they didn't, or maybe they didn't put in uh, numbers for how do you uh, acquire a multifamily uh, real estate assets. Your, your first book, I, that title's totally botched. Maybe they didn't spend enough time uh, in the weeds on those two books to potentially avoid that. But nevertheless, I mean, nobody's perfect. You know, yeah. we we were aggressive in those times as well. Yeah. So nobody's perfect. It's it's a tough tough situation. Nobody expected interest rates to triple and go up as the fastest they've ever gone up in modern history. Right? Nobody predicted it. So. I don't want to call people out and, and all that jazz, but the, the specific number or financial question that I'm trying to solve is not an emotional one or an, even a legal one, which I'd like to get into those topics as well as it relates to capital calls, but it's just simply crunching the numbers of, does it make sense to save the deal, right? If you, let's go back to our c- scenario. If you're sitting at a 4.5% yield on cost, and you're struggling to make interest payments every single month, right? The property is bleeding because your rate's at 8.3. And you, you have the option to feed the property and pay that interest. 
Another option is to refi out of that bridge loan and to try to get yourself into a lower interest rate debt product. However, and, and let's say it's possible, let's say you could get into 6.5% debt. However, it's going to be on a, on a fixed rate, lower leverage basis than your high leverage bridge. You're going to be going from, in a most dramatic circumstance, 80% loan to cost at the peak of the market valuations to a now 60% loan to value at lower valuations. That's a hard, hard gap, and that's going to require it's a, a massive big, delta. It's going to require a very big uh, capital call. However, as we've discussed, I don't know if on the show, but we've certainly discussed as a team, the best use of capital call funds is to right-size your balance sheet and to refi into a better debt and equity structure. People who are making capital calls so that they can pay an interest rate cap or making a capital call so they can fund CapEx, that's risky, that's scary. But if you can actually... Well, that's a one-time infusion of equity where who the heck knows if that will be able to solve for the next two years. Like the, the, these problems have just begun. You know, we haven't even been to a situation where jobs are bad yet, where rents have softened. So if you're in a situation where you're simply doing that just to meet a, a payment or two, then you're probably just sliding that money on fire to your point. Because circumstantially and economically speaking, we're really, we're not even on, we're at the driving range of the recession. We're not even on the first hole, right? People think that they need to survive to 25, they need to survive to, to 27, right? And that's a long runway and you'd have to be, so if you're making a capital call decision, I'm, the decision is I'm gonna put in more equity into the deal to fund interest payments. And those, that, those interest payments can come by way of a, a rate cap because that's a proxy for interest payments or it can come by way of actually making monthly interest payments. But in any case, if you're making a decision to put more equity into the deal to pay interest, you have to make a decision that you're willing to do that over the next three years at least. So that is a lot different than just saying, oh, we're going to make a capital call so we can buy a one-year rate cap because that only buys you a year. It's better than nothing. I mean, you obviously want to save your deal, but it goes back to my desire to develop a mathematical model in my head or on the spreadsheet of when does it make sense to simply walk from the deal? You know, there is a situation that it would make more financial sense to give the keys back, walk away from the deal, than it would be to continuously to put more money in. And I haven't really spent enough time developing that mental model, but it has to do with the fact that if you're sitting at a 4.5% yield on cost and you think you'll only ever be able to push it to a 5 over the next 5 years, but you think cap rates are terminally 6, the deal will never make money. Right, Your basis is too high and, w and the market will never solve your basis problem. And in the meantime, are you getting choked out by negative cash flow or flat cash flow? Would you instead be better off taking the money you would infuse to right-size the balance sheet to invest in new deals where you can go and pursue hopefully mid-teens returns? That is the unemotional, the dispassionate analysis that I'm not saying people should do it, because at the end of the day, there's emotion involved. You're not truly investing just numbers-wise. And like you said, people don't want to admit they're wrong. But that's kind of the thing that's been fascinating me about all this. Yeah, absolutely. Switching gears into preferred equity into deals. So your dad actually made a very astute comment today. And that was that PREF has stayed basically the same 
recently as it was a couple years ago, right? So explain the reasoning of the significance of that, and maybe just explain why we might well, actually want to consider prefing the deal. And for all of us who are wondering, oftentimes we get asked, do you have any pref in the deal? So let's also explain um, why it's important to go through that. Let's explain why it's important for you know a investor who's writing a $100,000 check, what it means to have preferred equity in the deal. And maybe let's talk about the various types of preferred equity in deals. So um, maybe you want to start with your, your dad's co comment and why that's beneficial to us right now currently or to a sponsor currently uh, and, and the impact of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think he uh, was stealing my thunder a little bit, going back to the debt panel at our mm -hmm. conference. Because uh, did I'm quoting him? Did I quote him quoting you? Perhaps, perhaps. perhaps. But it's okay. So the concept is senior rates were three percent before, roughly. However, in those days, pref was thirteen percent. So the delta in cost between subordinate financing and senior financing was very big. Senior was super cheap, and pref mes was low teens, mid-teens even in some cases. Now, today, we're looking at fixed rates or, or, or senior borrowing rates, 6 to 7% plus. So they've more than doubled. <clears throat> but subordinate debt, pref and mes, is still only around 13%. So it hasn't really moved up in cost as everything structurally has gone up in cost, which is... Very interesting, and I don't know why, but that makes borrowing pref and mes more well, attractive. What did you say about trends, though? So it hasn't just switched yet, but could it switch soon, right? Yeah, I could. I could see it switching soon. Who knows? Yeah. <clears throat> so if someone needs pref, you know, borrow it now, I guess. So, so, but, but realistically, it makes it more interesting to borrow pref because you can solve for a all-in cost of capital that is not so different from senior borrowing rates. Whereas if you're gonna slip in 13% PREF and the senior is 3%, even if you use a little bit of that PREF money, it's going to skyrocket your all-in cost of capital to five. And that's, that's crazy. You, you might as well just finance that balance with equity rather than that expensive debt. But today, equity is kind of as expensive as ever so PREF is looking kind of attractive. And then flipping on the other side of the equation a bit, to your point, you're saying investors ask us oftentimes, do you, do you plan on using PREF in this deal or have you used PREF in the past? And, and, and why is that important, right? So can you please unpack that? Because there's so many sides to this. If you're a fund manager looking to bring equity for us, if you're you know, a institutional player that wants to give equity to us, you know, and then as, as I said, the, the mom and pop, $100,000 check writer, what's the significance on all kind of sides of the angle there, or every side of the coin? Yeah, all equity is impacted by preferred equity because it's a senior subordinate relationship. So the PREF gets paid first on cash flow, the PREF gets paid back first on sale. So they have security in the deal and they subordinate the common equity. The common equity eats later or eats last. So that is more risk, right? Getting that leverage might make the numbers go up on the spreadsheet, but it also adds risk to the deal. And if you're looking at, a, if you're analyzing a deal, you have to, you can't just look at what the projected return is. You have to understand what the underlying risk is associated with that projected return. So if you're walking around town touting a 20% projected IRR, people want to know, how are you getting to that number? Is that 
through increased leverage because PREF is basically just more debt. And you can obviously lever up projected returns and make them look better through more debt. But if things go wrong, your equities can get wiped out. You can lose money more easily when you use more leverage. So that's the sensitivity behind preferred equity. And as you know, we've proudly told people, oh, we've never borrowed preferred equity. That's not, that's just something we've never done. And people, and I'll actually say this, this is kind of funny because people have this misunderstanding that are people that aren't in the institutional space and they know that we are, they misunderstand that when we're doing deals with family offices or private equity firms, they just jump to the conclusion and assume that we get that it's preferred equity yeah. or that we've, that we're being held hostage or that it's, you know, they take advantage of us. No, I mean, our favorite, some of our favorite investors and partners are family offices and private equity firms that are very savvy and sophisticated. And that sit just in the same spot in the capital stack as you would if you're a $100,000 investor. Yes. All as they call it, pari pasu. Pari pasu. Shoulder to shoulder. Standing shoulder to shoulder. Yes. yes 100%. Yes. So that's a misconception. But in any case, if we're going to now talk about the institutional partners, I would say 99% of institutional equity is a hard pass on a deal if there's preferred equity involved. That's crazy. I mean, that shows you that they don't want a part of it. And for them, there's more reasons than just the financial risk aspect. They also have hard problem with the control element of it. Because as an institutional investor in a deal, if you're writing 90% of the equity, you're going to have major decision rights. But if a preferred equity partner is involved in the deal, that preferred equity is going to have springing management rights. And so there's just more cooks in the kitchen. I mean, imagine that. You have a senior lender to contend with, preferred equity partner, common equity, or, or JV equity, and the sponsor. All those pieces need to be negotiated. That's a nightmare. So for that reason, and for the risk reason... It's just too convoluted. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a pass for the vast majority of private equity firms to invest subordinate to preferred equity. So with that said, you know, what would be the type of preferred equity that we'd be potentially interested in taking in a deal? And... Can you get can you get or not get certain types of debt with preferred equity? Can you maybe explain on that and kind of unpack the debt profiles uh, that are allowed or maybe not allowed with with preferred equity? If it's hard, if it's soft, so on and so forth, and maybe the nuance there because that's something I don't think the average or common person in the business actually knows. Sure. So, and also again, we're saying bad things about pref. Maybe. No, I don't. I don't think we are at all. It, pref moving forward. If we get a pref group at, you just said, 12 or 13%, and we think there's a screaming deal that is undervalued that we're buying, and we know in our heart of hearts via having deals in the local vicinity that maybe it's a smaller deal, uh, maybe it's a 15 or $20 million deal that we're getting for a how-could-you-not price, and we're putting you know, a 13 or 14% return there, and we're crunching the numbers, and Brad's up there at the World Trade Center saying, hey, this is a 22 IRR, um, and you know, downside protection, even with sensitivities, it's a 16 cat or 16 IRR, and we only have to meet that 12 or 13%, and we can eat that whole spread above that. Or ideally, you know, it, it could be 10 points, it could be three points. We're making a s ton of money on that deal. So that is not something that we should, you know, scoff at or or not consider at this very moment. So I don't think we're saying anything bad about pref. It's just not how we've done it historically speaking, but. 
we could solve for that moving up, especially if there's just so many deals that we want to buy coming up because we think the, the market, every basically deal is a winner. If that's how we feel on some deals and we got to do a deal or two that way, it's not ideal necessarily, but we might want to do it. Well, historically speaking, we've only been in business in good times. Yeah. And in good times, prices have been high. Risk has been high because that's the paradox. Good times are when risk is high. Bad times is when there's low risk. Shout out to Chris Mendez. Yeah. So with that in mind, if the deals look really attractive and the projected returns are super high, then it can make sense to want to have pref in the deal because you have high conviction. You could take advantage of the opportunity. So we're heading into a different market. And yes, absolutely. I think there could be some very compelling deals for us to look at with a preferred equity angle. So, and we're not going to be shy about it. We're not going to be shamed for doing preferred equity. And who knows, maybe even the institutional equity out there that for the past five plus years has had a hard pass on doing deals with preferred equity. Who knows, maybe those same groups change their mind. And now that they look at the numbers and the returns and they say, yeah, actually, it makes sense for us to want to do the deal with preferred equity because, like you said, it ticks all the boxes of higher returns, downside protection, even with the PREF. So, Yeah, and a lot of the groups we've been talking with that are maybe we don't have the most senior relationship with them or the longest tenure you know, history with them, a lot of them ask right away, hey, are you open to PREF in your deal? Maybe to start the conversation with some of these people to get them more comfortable with us. And I'm speaking uh, on my end, and I'm actually going to ask this to you, and we've never had this conversation before. Uh, but would we be open maybe to kind of starting a relationship with a bigger JV partner on the initial premise of taking or the initial relationship of taking equity from them in a um, preferred equity position? No, <clears throat> I hate that game. That's manipulative. Unless it's truly sincere and they have the best terms, I mean, we're not just going to do that. That's called the bait and switch, okay. right? Bro debt brokers will go out to the world and say, oh, well, you know, we can go find some equity for your deal. But in the meantime, here's the debt. Yeah. That's a bait and switch. Yeah. Same goes for this. And it, it, by the way, if you ever hit me with that, you're going to get a quick no response. I will never respond to you again. Please unsubscribe. Yes, correct. So, yeah, that's a bait and switch which is kind of, you know, doesn't taste good. Like, hey, you're not good enough for our JV equity, but common, yeah. here, play along with this pref equity, and if you do well, then maybe we'll take you seriously. I get it that, you know, trust takes time to build, but to me, that just doesn't feel right. Okay. However, if someone has a JV equity program... That's what I'm saying, yeah. And it, a pref equity program... That's really more what on, I was saying, yeah, yeah. And their pref happens to be the best option for the deal, then sure. Fair enough. Fair enough. So I guess why is it important that a investor know and why do our more sophisticated investors ask us if we have PREF in the deal? Is that because they are sitting above them in reference to payouts? So their tranche would have to be met for their allocation where, you know, towards the exit of a deal, should the returns be lower than projected, maybe less than uh, if they're at a 13 and the deal's an 11? they basically absorb that whole 11% return. Is that correct? Or how does, why does someone need to be asking? Why does the, the public investor, the not sophisticated investor need to know if there's pref or not pref in a deal? Yeah, like I explained, it just boils down to risk. If an investor has the option of investing in deal A and deal B, and they both have the same returns, but deal A is depending on pref, 
then you should go with deal B all day long because you can get the same return and take less risk. Pref is just more risky. That's just what it is. Uh, that doesn't mean that there are situations that pref, pref could actually be less risky. You know, would, for example, something very popular today is loan assumptions. You could buy a deal today and assume the seller's existing loan at a below market rate, which is great, but the problem is that loan might be assumed at a low LTV. You might be assuming at 50% LTV, but you're desirous of borrowing 70% LTV. Where's that 20% gap financing going to come from? Well, it could come from preferred equity. And you can put in 13% preferred equity, and let's say the below market interest rate is 4%, so then your weighted average cost of capital on that total 70% LTV is, I don't know, 5%, let's say, or 5.5%. That's cheaper and lower risk than putting on a new loan today at 70% LTV at 6.5% today. Yeah, buyer beware of loan assumptions. You know, yes, yesterday's debt is better than today's debt, but uh, yesterday's basis is substantially higher than today's. So be very wary of that unless there is a long tarmac on that. But we've spoken that before. Yeah, I don't like people pitching that a deal is good solely because it's a loan assumption. No, it's kind of a fallacy. It's a fallacy. And also, just think logically. Everyone has access to that loan assumption. So every buyer that looked at that deal, they underwrote that attractive 3% loan as well. So there's no alpha there because if you're buyer one, I'm buyer two, and there's buyer three over there, we're all using that same debt assumption to arrive at our valuation metrics. So none of us have an edge. So a loan assumption doesn't give you an edge at all. It just gives you a different return profile, but there's no alpha. Well said, well said. You had a very interesting LinkedIn post, and that was in reference to uh, basically all good real estate being bought with negative leverage. And then a gentleman I saw comment on how New York was always the appreciation game, um, and I'll be curious to know how that holds up long term. And then in addition to that, we come from the land of basically negative caps or very low caps, which is the Silicon Valley. So we're both, I'm from Menlo Park, you're from Matheson, it's been well documented on the show. San Francisco specifically had and also, you know, all throughout the Mid Peninsula in the Silicon Valley, had a lot of units trading at very low cap one rates. Caps. Exactly, one caps, two caps, whatever it may be. And it's interesting, but that's that was always the thought: is that you know, don't buy for cash flow, buy for appreciation. But you know, interestingly, I do think a lot of people's perspectives are, are shifting on that. And I most recently spoke with an individual yesterday that we've been kind of in contact with, um, a big IPA guy. Uh, and I'm not talking about the beer, but a big IPA guy, uh, you know, who is you know, basically speaking with investors who are, you know, long term, we're a lot more bullish on, you know, the, the Bay Area market, but are looking at other avenues as, you know, they think they have those areas have more room to grow and they're actually buying for cash flow purposes. Maybe that they're in a different phase in their career or, or life where they want to have more cash flow as opposed to appreciation. But nevertheless, um, the premise of, you know, good real estate being bought on negative leverage. And there was a really insightful comment on that as well. Um, that I think you could probably break down more, but kind of give us his take as to why this is the case. Yeah, so like you know, positive leverage, negative leverage, those conversations have been pushed to the forefront of commercial real estate. And I'm not going to say whether that's right or wrong, but I guess I will because we're talking about it. So what would you do? Yeah, the funny thing is, is two years ago in the height of the market, People were paying, like I said, three to four percent 
caps for deals, and rates were about three and a half to four and a half percent. Maybe you know, maybe a little bit less. So maybe there was some opportunities. There's definitely opportunities to buy on positive leverage. Absolutely, I'm not going to deny that. But there was still plenty of deals done at negative leverage, and nobody batted an eye because times were good and people were. Aggressive, and it's most often, and the biggest X factor that is the market in which the acquisition was made. Of course, right. So you know, lowest some of the lowest cap rates in the country were, let's say, Phoenix, for example. You're not buying negative leverage in Mobile, Alabama, with respect to all the good listeners who live in Mobile, Alabama. And if you are a listener at Mobile, Alabama, please DM me. I'd be very curious to know. (laughs) Uh, But that's it. Yeah. So yeah, right. Because why are cap rates low in the best markets? It's because people are buying on the presumption of future growth. You're okay paying a three cap because you know that rents are going to continue to be strong, jobs are strong, everything's good. So your three cap will naturally over time go from a three to three and a half to four and beyond. And it will kind of eventually bail you out in a way of overpaying and paying too low of a cap. So that concept speaks to the fact that in the, the best real estate, we're talking about prime markets, prime location in that market and the best real estate. Like we're here in New York and you look around at some of these premier core real estate buildings, they have historically been purchased with negative leverage because everyone wants to own it. And so the competition is high. Yeah. So how much equity needs to be put down when you're buying basically on that aggressive of negative leverage? Well, we don't know exactly the trades and what the, the, the extent of the negative leverage is, but you know, if you are doing, let's say, let's say you're buying a deal at a four cap and interest rates are five. That's, that's some serious negative leverage. And I would say that these big funds that own these trophy assets are doing like 40% leverage. You know, they're being quite conservative with their leverage. So to your point, the problem lies not in necessarily buying negative leverage because we know, historically speaking, trophy assets are purchased with negative leverage. The problem is, is in over-levering deals that are on negative leverage or doing negative leverage in a scenario where the opportunity and risk of getting to positive leverage doesn't work. You know, who knows, like you said, about the future of New York or a market like San Francisco. But historically speaking, the growth here has been so strong that people are okay paying a very low cap rate because year over year over decade over decade, rent growth is tremendous and they get deeply into positive leverage territory eventually. And for the record, maybe I'm too negative on the Bay Area, but I'm way more bullish on New York long-term than I am San Francisco long-term. I don't know if you feel similarly. I feel as if tech is not as consolidated uh, to Mm -hmm. San Francisco as it used to be before. And similarly, I think the experience one can get in New York is far greater than San Francisco, at least with recent trends. I could be wrong. Things change over time. But I believe in New York a lot more than the Bay Area. So, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So I, it's kind of funny. We're seeing deals right now in San Antonio that basically have positive leverage going into it. Houston, we're, we're really getting close to it, or we basically are neutral. Dallas, we're still not seeing you know, positive leverage for the most part. So that's interesting. I mean, I guess kind of right now, Maybe I'm trying to be I'm selfish here on my side, but I would love to get deals in San Antonio right now because we feel as if that that makes sense on going in numbers right now, even with debt today. So you know, 
do you think that will change in, in Dallas? Do you think we'll get at least close? Because I have to imagine, due to how coveted that market is, at the moment that the deal or the market is about maybe 10 bips above positive leverage or neutral leverage, that's when everyone and their mother and father and nieces and nephews will try to be to get into that market, right? So maybe kind of give us your thoughts on that. Yeah, so Dallas, so we're in, as you know, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, and San Antonio is our target markets. So we have experience and, and data points to look at. Of those three markets, Dallas is definitively the best. And don't take it from me, take it from the world. The world thinks that, and that is reflected in the cap rates, right? The cap rates are lowest in Dallas because people are the most bullish about Dallas's growth. So with, with that being said, to your point, the just numbers don't quite look as good in Dallas right now. And that's maybe because we're not aggressive enough or we're not willing to underwrite a high enough growth factor. But I think there's just more buyers that want Dallas real estate than there currently are sellers. And it's propping up prices and it's just, it's just not, not there yet. Do I think it's going to get there? I think it's going to improve. I think it'll remain the tightest and most competitive of the three markets. But I think there are certainly good buying opportunities in Dallas coming ahead. No doubt about it. Very cool. Awesome. Let's get to distressed capital funds So, and basically emergency capital. So I was kind of just thinking about this preemptively uh, before getting to the questions and I was kind of looking down. It's like there are people raising money for these opportunities, but would you ever do something like that? And do you think you're just better off putting your money into a deal as opposed to you know, kind of being put into almost like a bridge or hard money loan situation? Because that's kind of how I look at it. It's basically a hard money situation if you're getting, you know, or a prep situation, right? So kind of walk us through distressed capital funds or, you know, rescue funds, the whole nine. Well, there's a lot of talk about the distress in the market and how people want to take advantage of it. And their idea is to form a fund so that they can go in and rescue deals and, and give them basically pref. The problem is, <laughs> the problem is a lot of deals are not worth saving because why would you go in and put more equity into a deal if the deal is not worth the loan amount? Right. That's just step number one. Number one, you're just better off buying the deal from the lender than you are than trying to save the deal with the equity partnership. So there are, however, some deals that are worth more than the loan amount, and so you could justify putting fresh equity into the deal. Of course, you'd have to cram down or subordinate all the existing equity to protect your fresh equity position. But now you're talking about a legal headache. You've got to go in there, negotiate with the current equity. You have to negotiate with the current lender. Play this whole game for what? So that you can put in a million dollars, two million dollars, three million dollars. It's small potatoes. These are small checks and a lot of legal and a lot of cost, a lot well, of headache. And my also thought too is like, why would I put the money into a fund, especially if it's going into multiple deals? Who the heck are these sponsors? How, are, how is this new plan going to be better? It just feels like the toothpaste is out of the tube. You know, it, the deal's been soiled. Put your money into a new deal. Why are you doing this? How do you even audit this process? Who's to say that these you know, operators are even going to care anymore or they're not already thinking about you know, leaving their job or, or switching it to something new, right? So I just don't buy and believe into the process. To your point, people who are pursuing this strategy have to be prepared to operate the real estate. 
That's the only way it would work for you? Pretty much. Pretty much you're loaning money. Like JC said on the podcast a couple weeks ago, you're loaning the money as a 100% last resort before the sponsor gives it up and goes and gives it back to the bank. But you have to be there as their last, last option. And it's a hope and a prayer. But most likely, nine times out of ten, you're going to end up owning the real estate. And so a lot of people who are designing these funds or have these ideas, they're not prepared to own the real estate. Nor they even are prepared to negotiate the legal aspect of these partnerships. I just don't see it logistically making sense. I don't know why anyone would do it as opposed to just putting your money in, being a LP or whatever your position is in the capital stack in the equity play in an equity situation there and basically just restarting, starting fresh and not having to worry about that problem child and starting your business plan on a new endeavor with a longer tarmac and with people who are excited about the new opportunity, not, you know, who are already discouraged by, you know, getting bogged down by a issue uh, that they're maybe not so happy about or positive about. The best place to get a capital call from is from the existing investors. And I think a lot of people are not doing that or do not plan to do that because they think that's going to look bad. And so instead they'd rather get rescue capital or third party equity from somewhere else. But that's going to come at terms that are more painful and destructive to the deal than if you were to just have the investors ante up and capital call. You know, capital calls have a purpose, they're not evil, and they could certainly be better than borrowing 20% pref money, right? So I think that is another interesting element that, you know, we've heard people in the business say, oh, well, we're not gonna do a capital call, we're just gonna get pref. It's like, well, that pref's gonna be expensive and dilutive, if not directly, certainly indirectly, to the existing equity. Awesome. Supply conversation. So real quick, we'll just touch on this. When it comes to multifamily units, something to think about is what your competition is coming up. So we try to be um, very, very aware of what's going on there with our Yardy reports to make sure it checks out. Uh, Specifically, we also like to be in more suburban neighborhoods because supply doesn't come up as quickly. You know, if you are in downtowns, whether it be San Antonio, uh, Houston, or Dallas, depending upon where you are, there's often a lot of new, in the downtown, downtown area, new units coming up, right? So how do we kind of look and factor supply into uh, our equation and how that maybe affects the organic rent growth to the immediate vicinity and everything else in between? Yeah, it's not really any more complicated than just looking at the supply supply pipeline. And like you said, we gravitate towards submarkets that are naturally supply constrained. And or I should say economically supply constrained, right? We've said it a million times, developers can't build B-class product because why would they? They they need to be building A-class product so they can get the highest ROI. Land costs and construction costs are so high developers can only develop market rate product in pockets where the rents are high enough to justify their land and construction costs. So we love to be in submarkets where the rents are below that threshold. So a developer is going to overlook that area and instead develop elsewhere. So we like those pockets of limited new supply. We thrive there and we think that that's a very strong sweet spot for continued rent growth in that workforce housing segment. With that being said, 
right now there's very little new development happening because it's so difficult to get construction financing. So there's not a lot of new shovels going into the ground. There's certainly developments that started a year ago or two years ago that are going to be delivering and they're not going to be happy because they're going to deliver into a softer market coming up. However, there's not going to be many new deliveries in 2025, 2026, perhaps 2027. And that's going to be actually a great time for multifamily because there's going to be muted deliveries. So there's going to be less supply. And at the same time, demand should be rebounding. So that's, that we could see very strong rent growth in that period of time. So supply and demand, or supply specifically, ebbs and flows based on market dynamics. You know, rest in peace, Sam Zell, but he has so many funny one-liners. But he, he says, Confucius said, when there's money available, developers will build, right? So developers don't necessarily build because they think it makes economic sense. If they can borrow the money and raise the equity to do a construction deal, they build it because they want their developer fee. Yeah, they want the construction. The best time to probably do a zoning, entitlement, the whole nine project is probably today because to your point, it'll be delivered in maybe three to five years. Maybe if it's a five-year process, depending upon where you are and how long it takes, that's an incredible market likely to be uh, delivering your, your product to, right? Right. You just need land prices to come down, uh, which from what I've heard, they haven't yeah. much. So Right. Very cool. So with that said, let's get into the fun side of this conversation today, which is to start with New York restaurants. So we've been eating out essentially every single meal. I uh, look forward to getting back onto my dieting regiments of a lot more greens and a lot less french fries and fried food. But nonetheless, I have been enjoying my hiatus and cooking sabbatical of late. But that said, why don't we talk about some of your favorite restaurants we've gone to, maybe some restaurants we have been to in the last month. Well, I had recommended that you go to Grand Banks. Right. And so you just went to Grand Banks and Grand Banks is a very cool kind of sailboat on the Hudson, mm -hmm. just nearby in Tribeca. And they serve some of the best oysters I've ever had. As a matter of fact, they were the best oysters myself and my company had ever had uh, in our life. So it is not exaggeration. Also a food connoisseur who has a great palate as well, our, our dear friend Teddy Infantino, additionally uh, confirmed that those were the best oysters he's had. You eat oysters quite often. I do. I go to the oyster capital of the world, AKA Buck and Ryder, very frequently in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, and likewise, that place has great oysters, but they got topped by Grand Banks. So Grand Banks got a small menu, but a solid menu. Um, so the oysters there were impeccable. Unfortunately, for those who are listening to this now, it's a seasonal restaurant. It's likely not going to be open. And probably until May or April would be my guess as to when it would reopen, but that would definitely be something I would circle if you are a oyster connoisseur. 100%. Very cool seasonal experience, right? More of a fun thing to do, right? Because it's on the boat. The it's boat. a novelty. Yeah, it's a bit of a novelty, but what I appreciate is it's not just a novelty. It's not just a restaurant on a boat. It's a really good Correct. restaurant on a boat. Yes. So that is cool. That is very cool. So Grand Banks is cool. Also, uh, kind of just working backwards, let's shout out uh, Simone and Andrea, the owners of a pasta bar. Yeah, went there as well uh, with company. And we both agreed that the pasta is, there's not a 25-bit premium on Carbone pasta 
above the Apostle Barpasa. Actually, we both thought that the Apostle Barpasa was equal to or better than uh, Carbone's Pasa itself, which is nuts to say. Uh, but we are going to Carbone tomorrow night. And yeah, so Apostle Bar is great. The vibe there is awesome. If you're kind of into that, you know, house music kind of feel, it, just imagine if European. Soho was yeah, if Soho was a restaurant, it would be a pasta bar. Well, it is in Soho, exactly on the corner of West Broadway and, and Grand Street, so it's exactly. a lovely location right next to Soho Grand. Yeah, music's playing, the vibe is good, great date night. Um, you know, they were yep. nice enough to uh, give us a couple courtesy drinks and. Uh, a nice dessert as well. So we always appreciate the hospitality that we get there and also we have the best table in the house. So you'd love to see that. So speaking of Carbone, you compared the Apasta pasta to Carbone pasta, Carbone. So Carbone's a very cool restaurant that we have the, the good fortune to be able to go to. Well, as a matter of fact, you were, as they say, getting handshakes from the branch manager there. We pulled up to Carbone and the hostess very kindly said, hello, Rob, nice to see you. Uh, so you must pay several visits there on maybe a weekly cadence, a bi-monthly bi cadence. What is your appetite, uh, no pun intended, for that restaurant? Well, it just depends on how many investor dinners we're going on. Right, so, right, right. We have a big one coming up tomorrow, as a matter of fact. So shout out to anybody listening. If you are a uh, big-time investor, we'd love to take you out and wine and dine you at the finest. Exactly. So which Carbone certainly is the finest. It's a great experience. The spicy rigatoni is objectively the best menu. I well, actually, it's not overrated. Let me it, just no, say that it, it's it's properly rated. It is as advertised. It is incredible. But another thing that Carbone does very well is oysters. Not as good as Grand Banks, but some of the best oysters in some, the city. Some very good oysters. And then yes. the raw fish is really good there. Very good. Really, really awesome. And, and then I think that the bread that you get served with that Carbone is to die for as well. So those are some great factors, but it's really the, the service and the ambiance and the fact that you really do kind of feel like you're in Italy there, um, that you do kind of love it as, as, as far as, you know, the chairs, the music and whatnot, you really do feel it's a true, authentic New York experience. You kind of feel like you're in a little bit of a time vacuum and you're back in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Yeah, the waiters do a fantastic job and wow, voice yeah. cracks are coming out. Sorry, Matt. <clears throat> so... Yeah, the Carbone is just Carbone, right? When you're there, you feel special. You're like, oh, wow, this is cool. They're treating me well. It's a fun experience. It's, it's a bit whimsical, right? And so I think that makes for a good experience. Speaking of oysters, continuing to go on for Charles Prime Rib. Now, okay. I haven't tried this one yet. However, this place must be like Fort Knox because it's impossible to get into. Is that correct? It's impossible to get in. Uh, so again, if you are a big time investor, we'll take you to Fort Charles. Correct. So, yeah, why don't you give kind of the breakdown of the Four Charles? Yeah, kind of so Four setup. Charles, amazing oysters. Very, very good oysters. oysters. Yeah, really good oysters. Where do you rank it between the scale of one to Grand Banks? So, to be honest with you, the, the <laughs> first couple times that we went to Carbone, the oysters were different. They were smaller and they also had a little bit of garnishing. Lately, mm. they have been. No, they had a little garnishing. They had garnishing? And they're, they're they've been bigger. Size. They've been bigger. Yeah. They've been, it's probably seasonal though, because you don't yeah. get to choose what oysters no. you get. Yeah. So I would say the first time we went, the first couple of times we went to Carbone, those oysters were on par with Fort Charles. However, the last few times we've gone to Carbone, I think those oysters are worse than Fort Charles. Fort Charles has really, really good oysters. So just uh, uh, how many basis points below uh, Grand Banks would you call the Fort Charles oysters? I would say Grand Banks are like 
you know, let's just say they're a 10 out of 10. I would say the, the four Charles. I'm going to say a 9.8 because there's no 10 out sure, of 10. Sure, sure. Yeah. Nine and a half, whatever. Yeah. I would say you're taking maybe like a 25 only basis point hit down to four Charles. Maybe 25 to 50 basis point hit. And then you're talking about down to Carbone. I honestly think it's 100 bips below that. It's No, it's more than that. And that's not a shot to get nitpicky with regards to great oysters because if you have a seven or it, probably seven and a half, I would call Carbone's a, a, a flat eight. Or maybe eight, I'd say late, lately seven and a half. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, no, listen, it's, it's it is what it, what it is. I it's, mean, it's a what have you done for me now league, as they say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's what have you done for me now. So for Charles, the thing I was, obviously everyone knows if you're in New York, you've heard of Four Charles and you've heard of the burger, very famous burger. You've heard of the rib, prime rib, right? It's called Four Charles prime rib. So the steak was... Incredible. I don't really get impressed by steak anymore. Not you're, because you're not, I, well, because a steak is. I'm just not that much of a steak. No, but, but moreover, I think once you've had, call it, a hundred steaks as an adult, or whatever it may be, uh, you know, as a professional, you, you go out, you get steak dinners. In our world, that's very frequent. Right. A steak is a steak is a steak. Okay. And yeah. moreover, I'm sorry, but I could go to, we I, can go to Texas. We can cook we our can, own. I can go to Bosco, as you call. It. We can go to Costco, get really great meat, and cook it exactly how I like it. And my big qualm recently, actually, is, it's so funny, uh, is when you go to steakhouses, it's disgusting how much butter they throw on steaks. So I actually asked them to make steaks now without butter on it. And when that's actually eliminated, it doesn't even taste that good. Like, I kind of like, why, why am I here? No. Sometimes steakhouses have cooler vibe and ambiance to them, for sure. But eating steaks out... Um, is not really something I'm interested in doing anymore because I'd way that rather, way rather have them cook something that I can't make myself or you know have something like an oyster, which I'm a big seafood person. So Or exactly. a Dover or yes. maybe not Dover, Dover but... Um, halibut. What, what's the favorite? Bronzino. Bron- right? Bronzino for sure. Which we should probably get tomorrow night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, so Dover, yeah, Dover is my favorite fish. So that's, that's something I'd much rather order than a steak. I think that... Yeah, I mean, unless it's reserve cut. We had the cheesecake, we had the carrot cake, and we had the tiramisu, which tiramisu at a pasta bar is actually the best tiramisu I've ever had in my life. Correct. Like, without, without exaggeration, the best I had. And it's shocking. We totally forgot about dessert. Yeah. A pasta bar, tiramisu. I'm not a big tiramisu guy, but definitely the best tiramisu out there. Yeah. And then recently... Actually, also, too, no, the, we're, we're also skipping a massive a pasta bar shout out here. The burrata at tiramisu, or sorry, tiramisu, the burrata at a pasta bar is the best burrata I've ever had. Really? Yeah. And I've been to Italy several times. It is at or above anything you get there. Okay. Okay. I haven't tried and it. And by the way, the best restaurant in Italy is La Giostra in Florence. Back to you. Okay. So a pasta bar also for dessert, strawberries and cream. Mm-hmm. Very good. <laughs> strawberries and cream, very good. And it's fresh. You don't feel guilty. You're just having some strawberries. No, it's, yeah. yeah, it's very light. So I, I really like it. I don't know if. You... But before Charles, we're, we're, we're yeah. So, so the cream pie there. Right. So <laughs> so for Charles, the Sunday Patrick had the idea. He said, Ah, oh, the Sunday's kind of calling my name. I don't really like ice cream, but this Sunday came out with was it different chipriani ice cream? Was it that good or it was? Was it the, was the softness similar to the bite? Yes, yes, and it had some incredible whipped cream on top, and it had strawberry vanilla chocolate and they came into the chocolate drizzle there was something about it it was unbelievable so teddy would geek over that huh we you know teddy's not a steak guy or really a burger guy but we need to take him to fort charles because yeah wow yeah okay so those are the more recent ones those are some highly coveted restaurants in the city 
We also often go to Reserve Cut, so for anyone who wants to attend our event next year, we will continue the theme and legacy of uh, stimulating the economy with a very massive and very big uh, Reserve Cut bill, uh, of course. So Reserve Cut, the tacos, little beef tacos Oof. that come up there are phenomenal. We had the crazy and amazing idea of getting a, a steak on our steak because we ordered tomahawks for the entire steak there, or for the tables there. Tomahawk is great. Um, I had the filet there, which is awesome. So just a solid steakhouse. It's the best kosher restaurant likely in the city. Maybe I mean, At least downtown. Uh, yeah. We haven't really sampled the midtown stuff. And yeah. apparently kosher midtown, a lot more options. And well, the, 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 probably the best steakhouse for a kosher. And, and a very you know known, what I'm saying? I'm yeah. saying kosher steakhouses. steakhouses. Okay. Yeah, there's a well, lot. Of, Reserve Cut is a very known restaurant. Though, nonetheless, a lot, of, a lot of status associated with Reserve Cut, which is very cool. Um, it's like our second home. Exactly. Precisely. I mean, listen, if... Someone's got to go on the steak dinners. I mean, that's something I've been eating out essentially every single night with investors and clients, and I love it. So, as I said, if you're in New York, you want to go out, you want to give us some equity, we will take you out very happily. Um, so, that said, what are some of the more, I guess, lower-key restaurants? We can start with really low-key. I've been really enjoying Tacombi, uh, which is a really cool joint out here. And then, if you're a Mexican food person, which we both are being from the Bay Area, but in addition to that, Los Tacos number one. Now, Los Tacos number one might leave you with some liabilities the next day, but nonetheless, it's a great little um, quick Mexican spot to eat at. Um, <laughs> and then what are some of the other restaurants as well? And you've been talking about Ligertine. Yes, Ligertine is definitely worth a mention. Lovely yeah. day, if you like Thai food's pretty good. Yeah, I haven't been there in a while, but absolutely lovely day in Nolita is a great, great spot. Can't make a reservation and they only take Amex or cash. Kind of a funky spot. But Le Gertine is at the Beekman Hotel in Fidei. And the reason why I think it's worth bringing up is because I do think it might be my favorite restaurant. Le Gertine. Yeah. Wow. And not everybody knows about it. So you can go in and get a table. It's What's not hard. What's the cuisine? It's French, which is crazy because French is far from being my favorite. Well, French cuisine. is very delicate. You probably don't leave there with a stomach ache. You probably eat very nice, well put together, delicate mm -hmm. food. Yes. That you know, do they have escargot, escargot there out of curiosity? They of course, have escargot. I, I would love to have escargot. And they there. have a brilliant sole. Are you an uh, escargot? I'm not yeah. an escargot guy. Have you had it? I have had it. So, the sole there is better than the Dover sole at Carbone, and, and that's not saying a ton because I just don't. I don't even think the Carbone sole is that great. Right. But the Glagertine yeah. sole. Very, very good. Well, very yeah. good. French restaurant as opposed to Italian restaurant. Sometimes French do some things a little bit better. Yeah, so I think Ligertine's worth a mention. Awesome in the Beekman, down in Fidei. Acheval, something we go to, you know, I would say, I go there probably four times a year now. So, you know, typically speaking, our good friend Patrick Hopp loves to go there um, and treat himself when he's off his diet uh, for that. So that's one uh, restaurant that we like a lot. Um, speaking of which, we have a friend coming in right now. Uh, so if there's a little noise in the background, you know why. But what are some other restaurants that you know uh, and really enjoy in the city? And what are some restaurants that you haven't tried yet in the city that you would like to go to? Ooh, great questions. All right, so let's wrap this up. So Koo Ramen is another more low-key one, right? Not going to break the bank, not a four-hour meal. So Koo Ramen is, I think, I mean, there's so many good ramen spots, so you don't have to go to the best ramen, but it is some of the best ramen. Also, oh, everyone has the best ramen spot or best sushi right. spot, you know. Right. So speaking of sushi, 
Sushi Nakazawa, we'll go lightning round. Sushi Nakazawa, you've probably heard of you it. You love that place. I love yeah. that place. It's, it's really cheap too. It's it's not very cheap. So no. if you like, <laughs> no, if you like, um, it's very expensive. If you like sushi and omakase, then you should watch the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Right, that's just an awesome documentary about a very famous sushi chef in Tokyo and his apprentice in that documentary. His name is Nakazawa, and then he actually, his dream was to come to New York and open a restaurant, and that's exactly what he did. And he's gone on to be even more successful with more restaurants in LA and DC. So I, I really have an attachment to kind of the story and the brand, and, and then I love, I love the, the experience there. Very cool. Any other places of, of note that you would like to mention? Well, I'd like to answer your question about what I'd like to try that I haven't mm. yet. So mm -hmm. recently crossed off Fort Charles on the list. Right, right. That and you'll be you know, a repeat patron, it sounds. I will be. I mean, Fort Charles I've been wanting to go for years. Right. Seriously. It's, it is Fort Knox, like right. you said. So what's next on the list to cross off that I haven't been to? I don't know. There's so many restaurants in the city. But right now I'm kind of finding a groove of becoming more of a regular rather than just trying to jump around to that, new spots. And that's why I love a pasta bar. I want to keep going back there. I want to keep you know that business going and build my relationship there. And I just know I'm going to get taken care of. I know what the vibe's going to be like. I know it's a can't-miss menu option with what I like there. It's impossible to not like it. Plus, I just love you know walking from your place to Soho like that. Super easy to do. It's fun. And then I went there and got a cocktail uh, following that um, dinner. I actually went from Weather Up, which is a cool little cocktail spot, to uh, a pasta and then to Soho uh, Grand Hotel. So it was a really fun kind of setup and night there. Uh, if you want a not so cheap, but a very great night out that's can't miss, I would follow that little uh, trio right there for sure. Um, so, you know, to your point, it is fun to have the repeat places where you feel like kind of like a regular um, and then mix in some, some old with the new. I've heard really great things about Sedels, so I want to try that next time I'm out here, Brunch. I think. Exactly. Very so Sedels for brunch, maybe <laughs> we'll a Saturday that. or Sunday yes. for sure. Um, and then what other, you know, I guess a couple spots that you say you want to try. So is, is there really much on that list? I'd have to consult my list. There's a lot on the list. Right, right, but right. I don't really know. Why don't you, uh, why don't you just take us home from here? Yeah. Cool. Well, from there, we're going to go. And you want to say hello real quick to our guest who comes in because we're almost getting off the rails. Oh, no, let's, let's not do, let's, let's cut it off. It's been, it's been too long. All right. It's a long enough episode. Thank you for listening to episode 19 of Capital Spotlight Podcast. We will have clothing being addressed at some point in the future. Thank you for listening. Peace.